Well, let me pray, just particularly for your Chinese students you'll have in your home and for my message this morning. Father, I just would pray that you would create within us a, a heart of outreach, God, to reach out to those who don't know Christ. Uh, God, the, uh, it's, a, it's a difficult harvest. Oftentimes the ground is hard. Um, God, I've been praying fervently, oh God, that you would reap that harvest here at Rock Valley Bible Church. Pray for these uh, kids coming in. I think they're high school kids from China. Just would pray over the warp and woo for the next week and a half that the Georges and the Underhills and uh, maybe others would have opportunities simply to share their lives and share the gospel, God, in a, in a way that just makes sense, makes them see, God, not only just what the gospel is, but how it lives out. And so, Lord, would pray your, your blessing upon there. Just even tensions about different people being in the home. I would pray you'd help, but I pray these 10 days would be a, a great encouraging day. A great encouraging week for for them. So I would pray also, God, that you would open our hearts to the uh, the message this morning as we think about your mercy. God, grip us by your mercy. I, I pray that we might so live to extend mercy to others. We pray in Jesus' name, Amen. We come this morning to the sixth and final section of uh, our book of our uh, the book of Romans. Um, it's where Paul makes his turn. He's turning from doctrine to practice. He's turning from theology to daily living. And this is often a a pattern of the Apostle Paul. He often begins with doctrine, and then he goes to application. Uh, The book of Ephesians, three chapters of of doctrine about the the great blessings that God has given us and calling us to salvation. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, right in the middle of the book, I therefore entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which you've been called. In other words, in light of this great grace of the calling you've been called, walk worthy of that. Uh, The book of Colossians, same thing. Two chapters describing the supremacy of Christ. And then chapter 3 comes the turn. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above. Set your minds on the things that are above. That is, in light of how great Christ is, set your mind there upon him and live Appropriately, The book of Galatians, similar. Two chapters of testimony, two chapters of doctrine. And chapter 5 is where the turn is. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And it kind of goes on to real practical about how, how to live. And it's no accident this is, uh, that this is Paul's method because the Christian life is based on truth. It, it's based upon our response to God's grace to us, or better yet, the Christian life is based upon the gospel. In other words, the Christian life isn't based upon all these rules and regulations that God has, has given us and requires us to follow. The Christian life is fundamentally about what God has done for us and then how we respond to that. What God has done for us on the cross and how it is that we respond. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 1 and 2, he says, When I came to you, brothers in Corinth, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and crucified. Have you ever thought about that? You just think about, he determined to know nothing among them about, except Jesus Christ and crucified. Now, it's not that Paul went into Corinth and just said, Jesus Christ and crucified, Jesus Christ and crucified, as if there was some magical mantra there. That, that's not what it was, it was about. It's not that he repeated this over, not even that he repeated the gospel story over and over and over again. Rather, it's that he related everything back to the cross of Christ. That, that the work of Christ changes everything for us, and we live in response to him dying for our sins. That is Christian living. 
so different than any other religion in the world. It just got some rules to follow and you follow to measure some morality. Paul's point is exactly the same in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. If you haven't done so already, I invite you to open your Bibles there. Romans chapter 12. We're just going to look at one verse today because of how crucial and central this verse is. If you didn't bring a Bible, you can open up on your pew Bible, page 947. The verse is located, and I I simply want to read it for you. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. My message this morning is entitled, Living in Light of the Mercies of God. Because that's what Paul's encouraging us to do. He's, he's compelling us to take into account the mercies of God and then live accordingly. I want you to see first the appeal of Paul. This is Paul's appeal, Paul's plea, if you will. He says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers... This is Paul at his pastoral best. He, he's not calling upon his apostolic authority by way of command. He's, he's not compelling the Romans to some blind act of obedience. He's appealing to them. He is urging them. That's, that's why he calls them brothers. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. It's a term of endearment. It's a term of uh, a family and love. He says, I, I have your best in mind, and here is the best thing for you. By the mercies of God to present your bodies a living sacrifice. Now, this is similar to what Paul did with Philemon. You remember the story with Philemon? Um, that his slave, Onesimus, had escaped. And he'd been gone for some time. And then he, he ran into the Apostle Paul. And through Paul's influence, Onesimus became a Christian. And uh, Paul knew the right thing to do would be to send Onesimus back to his owner, uh, Philemon, who had every right to punish him. And perhaps even put him to death being a runaway slave, depending upon his circumstances. Yet Paul knew that Philemon also was a believer in Christ, who had been shown mercy at the cross. And Paul knew that there was a likelihood that Philemon would extend mercy to Onesimus. And so look what Paul writes in Philemon 8 and 9. Though Philemon, I am bold enough in Christ to command you what's required. Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. Similar idea, similar word that he's saying here. I'm appealing to you. It's a strong urge. It's, a, it's an urging, but it's not, it's not coming forth with apostolic authority, even though here he says he's bold enough to do that. And then he continues on. I'll just read 10 through 16 just to think about the appeal. He says, I appeal to you, again, that same word, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Paul was in prison. Onesimus came, was converted, now he's sending him back. He says, formerly he was useless to you as a non-Christian, but now indeed he is useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve with me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord, right? In other words, he wanted wanted Philemon to act of his own accord, of his own desire. Therefore, that's why he appealed to him. He called him. And that's Paul's appeal here in Romans. It's not that it's a command. Now, Paul's not afraid of commands. Here in chapter 12, I counted more than 40 commands. 
that he gives to uh, the people in Rome. Forty commands in 21 verses, a lot of commands. At least two per, per verse. It's dense. Now, it's a huge contrast you need to see from what came before. Eleven chapters with, with few commands. I, I didn't count them up, but I think it would be less than 40 in 11 chapters. And now in chapter 12, all of a sudden coming with 40 commands. It's a huge contrast. That's why, by the way, I'm going to try to slow down in chapter 12. Um, lest we just zoom past the application of the letter. Just want us to, to really, really just spend some time dwelling on things here. That's why I'm going to spend time this week. In uh, just one verse, next time I'll spend spend just time in, in verse 2, and we'll take our time here, just kind of working through these commands. But all these commands are premised upon verse 1. They're all responses to mercy. They're all under the umbrella of Paul's appeal. Not so much commands of authority, but commands to obey because of God's mercy to us, which is my second point, the mercies of God. Paul says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers... By the mercies of God to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And when Paul says the mercies of God, he means chapters 1 through 11. He means how God has been merciful to sinners deserving judgment. And by those mercies, here comes the appeal to so live consistently with that. And the living is being a living sacrifice. So it really calls us to review, especially as we're right at this hinge. I think about Romans. We, we've summarized Romans in, in six words. Sin, salvation, sanctification, security, sovereignty, and service. And uh, Paul begins the book of Romans with a discussion of sin. He spends three chapters talking about sin. Spends three chapters describing how we're all under the wrath of God for our sin. In fact, he says Jew and Gentile alike. The Gentiles are under sin because they, they know God through the creation, but they have refused to honor Him or give thanks to Him. Furthermore, they've claimed to be wise. And having ex- claimed to be wise, they exchange the truth of God for Images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and, and creeping things. In other words, right? They've known about the, cre- cre- the creator, but have replaced him by the creature. And therefore, Gentiles are under condemnation. The Jews also are under sin because they have the written revelation of God in the Old Testament. But they have failed to live in obedience to it. Romans chapter 2, verse 23 says, You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. And as a result, we're all under sin. And that great summary statement in chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, it's up there on the screen. As is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. That's the bad news of the gospel. It's where he starts. He starts with sin, that we're all under condemnation for our sin. We're totally helpless to escape the wrath of God, which Paul mentions in chapter 1 and verse 18 about God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And, and you need to let this sink in because to the deeper this sinks in of our sinfulness, the greater then comes the mercy of God. Well, the story that has gripped our, our nation this week is the story of a dozen boys from a soccer team and their coach who are trapped in a flooded cave. June 23rd, 
These kids, age 11 through 16, and their 25-year-old coach entered the cave. And as they passed some things, heavy floods came in. And, of course, many of you know about that. In fact, if you don't know about it, I probably heads in the sand. It's just a compelling sort of story. You hear about it. And, and the search for the boys was difficult. But a week later, after June 23rd, I don't know, it was June 30th or July 1st or something like that, they found the boys. <laughs> they're found. They're alive. But that's only half the story because they're trapped. And their escape is, is difficult. And while the world rejoiced in, in finding them, that wasn't the end. It was acknowledgement of the problem. I mean, it's an acknowledgement. Yes, I'm a sinner. Yes, I'm lost. Yes, I need help. I need rescuing. And they needed a rescue. They need a rescue. They're totally helpless. Maybe you've seen some pictures of them in the cave. In the cave. They, they're just sitting there. They've got those aluminum coats, if you will, to reflect the heat, the radiant heat back to them. They're just sitting around without anything they can do to save themselves. There's nothing they can do. If they would try to swim back, they would, they would die because there's, there's no way that they can get back without help. They're just sitting there trying to stay warm. It's really a picture like us in our sin. We're like boys in a cave, helpless, needing for someone to come to our rescue. Now, the good news for the boys is this, that the world has come to their, their rescue. The resources, the people that have been put into this rescue effort has simply been amazing. Consultants from all around the world have been there. Divers have come. Cave experts have come. Drilling experts have come. News teams have come. Resources have poured in. Companies have given their resources, donated much of things, all to rescue these boys. People have even given their lives to rescue their boys. Maybe you know that. The former Thai Navy SEAL diver, Saman Gunan, he died in his effort to try to bring oxygen to these, these boys. Now, I hesitate to use this illustration, um, but I read on the Internet that several of the boys this morning even have been brought out successfully. It's a very dangerous sort of thing, and I don't know how it all will end up, but it's a, it's a great illustration of, 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 of us because when it comes to us, we need an extraction work. We need God to come in and to bring us out. I mean, the story I hear about these kids, they can't even swim, many of them. Um, they're, they're young and weak. And, and basically, it's, it's kind of, I, I learned, basically, they're kind of sit there and they're going to be dragged out, not doing a whole lot. And when it comes to us, that's exactly the same picture that, that God has come to our rescue. And he's rescued us. He's dragged us out of the cave. He saved us from our sins. And that comes in chapter 3. A, a big turn here it comes in chapter 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from law. We saw the wrath of God being manifest in chapter 1, verse 18. And now we see the righteousness of God being manifested. And it comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That is, through faith in Christ, God's righteousness then comes to us. And that is our, our second word outlining the book of Romans. It's salvation. And chapters 3 through 5 describe our salvation. That it's, it's not of works. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Chapter 3, verse 24, that we are justified, that is made right before God. They're vindicated by God so that God is no longer angry at us for our sin. His wrath no longer comes upon us. He's justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. That's God's mercy. We who deserved hell got grace instead. Now, that's not anything new. 
Uh, this has been always the way it is with the, the people of God. Take, for instance, Abraham. Paul quotes Abraham uh, from Genesis 15, verse 6, in chapter 4, in verse 3. What does the scripture say? It says, Abraham believed the Lord, and he counted to him as righteousness. You've seen this picture before. The Lord is in heaven. Abraham is here on earth, and he believes by his faith. And after believing, I am gone. Um, man. His faith goes, I have this cool graphic that you guys all have, have seen, right? Let me, let me just plug here again. All right, we're rebooting. But anyway, the, the idea here is that faith goes up, and as Abraham believes going up, then God looking down then is the one who justifies him in righteousness. And that's all apart from works. It's his faith that justifies him, that brings him. And David knew it as well in chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sin is covered. There was David in Psalm 32. Here we go. Let's try this. There we go. Let's go back. You got Abraham, and he believes in the Lord, and it comes to him as righteousness. And we see David as well. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not count sin. And there is David reflecting upon his great forgiveness that he knew. It is that God is looking down on him and not imputing his wickedness to him. Rather, he's imputing righteousness to him, forgiving his deeds. It's the heart of the gospel, right? Declaring us righteous apart from our works. Declaring that we are forgiven because of our faith and trust in Him. And the only thing that we contribute to our salvation is our sin. Romans 5 verse 8, God shows His love for us that while we we're still sinners, Christ died for us. That leads us then into sanctification, which is the next section in Romans. It's 6 and 7. It's a theological word that simply means pure or righteous. Sanctification describes the process of becoming more and more like Jesus. It works like this, right? If you, if you truly believe in Christ, you have a union with Christ. There's, a, there's a, a connection with him so that we no longer sin. We no longer can sin. If we have been united with Christ, how can we sin? How can we who died to sin, chapter 6, verse 2, still live in it? Because we have new desires and new, new, new passions that walk that way. Paul says, you must consider yourselves dead to sin, alive to God in Christ Jesus, right? We consider ourselves dead to sin because we've died to sin with Christ because we've been united with him and alive to righteousness. Not because the law constrains us, but because Christ sets us free. Chapter 6, verse 17 and 18. There's a great summary here where he says this. He says, Thanks be to God that you who once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you are committed. And having been set free from sin, you become slaves of righteousness. Right? That, that just we're free from sin now to serve righteousness. Now, that's not without a struggle. Okay? How can he who died to sin still live in it? But we still live in sin and we, we struggle. As Paul said in chapter 7, verse 22 and 23, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. I, I have this delight in God's law, what it says. But I see a 
in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. There's a struggle between what he, he knows and delights in and yet his, his flesh and his body holds him back. And he, he's constantly, he's this wretched man that I am. I got this body and I'm not serving God. I'm not. And I just say this, the struggle is evidence of salvation because it, it evidences a new heart and a new desire. But the struggle ought not to lead us to despair. And that's chapter 8 where we talk about security. I talked about this last week, so I won't dwell on this very much, but it's all, we're secure in the work of Christ. Chapter 8, verse 1, there's no condemnation in Christ. We're secure in the love of Christ. Nothing will separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord, right at the end of chapter 8. And then Paul leads into a discussion of the the sovereignty of God, which we've been in for the last couple months, Romans 9 through 11. But you see in these this, these sections of chapter 9 through 11, when it talks about the sovereignty of God, it's the sovereignty of his mercy. It's the freedom of God to extend mercy. The core of the argument comes in Romans 9, verses 15 through 18. He says to Moses, is quoting the Old Testament, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. See, it's God. God's the potter. We're the clay. God is the one with the freedom, and he extends that to us in mercy. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. That's where salvation ultimately depends. Verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And Paul concludes, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. At the heart of the sovereignty of God is the freedom of God, and the freedom of God is his ability to distribute mercy as he sees fit. I trust you see the emphasis there on mercy in these verses because salvation's all about our, our mercy. Stephen, we've got four verses and four times mercy is, is just talked about them and in his sovereignty. He's merciful, most merciful to us. And that's where he ends this section from Romans 11, right before the doxology we looked at last week. Look at verse 30 of chapter 11. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. That's talking about the Gentiles, right? The Jews, right? You Gentiles were disobedient, but now you receive mercy. They too have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may now receive mercy. For God has consigned to all disobedience, all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. And again, I've just shown there some time that the mercy is... It's been manifest in that verse. Just talking about God's mercy to you, even though you're disobedient. And, and even the Jews, they're disobedient, but they will receive mercy as well. It's all about the mercy of God. It's really the core of our salvation is the mercy of God. It's why Paul appeals by the mercies of God. Paul appeals by our, our great salvation. And this affects our life. It, it affects our Christian service, which is last word here in our, our outline. We're going to start chapter 12. Verse 1, and following on about Christian service. That is how that we can live to serve others. That is, within the church, talks a lot about that. Also talks about those outside the church who are in need of Christ. In Romans 15, Paul's going to lay forth how it is that we can serve in light of the great great, uh, salvation that God has provided. We can serve others in need of Christ. And so in all of our service, here it is, we need to live in light of the mercies of God. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers... By the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Mercy is at the heart of how much of our interaction should be. 
In fact, look at Romans 12, verse 14. Look at, look at mercy's theme through here. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Isn't that mercy, right? Those who, who persecute you, our natural response is retaliation by the mercies of God. We're directed otherwise. The mercies of God direct us to bless. The same thought comes in verse 17. Look, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Justice repays evil for evil, but mercy refrains. In fact, this definition of mercy, right? Not giving people what they deserve. And that's what verse 17 is all about. Look at verse 19. Behold, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. We don't need to avenge ourselves. God will do that better than we will, more accurately than we will, more completely than we will. Our posture should be mercy. Mercy towards those who have wronged us. To the contrary, verse 20, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Our enemy has a need. We should meet the need. And that's mercy. And that's how we win the day. Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. There's mercy being extended for evil coming. As we work through our way through Romans chapter 12, I'm going to seek hard to just remind you of this. Just how God's mercy works and how we should flow from that. And verses 12 through 21 are all about direct merciful actions. But that doesn't mean that verse, the other verses aren't. Like, like look at verse 9. I do believe the way verse 9 works is this. Let love be genuine. And I'm going to work hard when we go through that verse is to say, because of God's mercy, let love be genuine. Because of God's mercy, abhor what is evil. Because of God's mercy, hold fast to what is good. Because of God's mercy, love one another with brotherly affection. Romans 12.10 Because of God's mercy, outdo one another in showing honor. Because of God's mercy, do not be slothful in zeal. Verse 11 Because of God's mercy, be fervent in spirit. Because of God's mercy, serve the Lord. Because of God's mercy, rejoice in hope. Because of God's mercy, be patient in tribulation. Because of God's mercy, be constant in prayer. Because of God's mercy, contribute to the needs of the saints. Because of God's mercy, seek to show hospitality. I do believe that's the way that chapter 12 works. It all stems from the, the, the great appeal here. By the mercies of God, present your bodies living sacrifice. And how do you do that? By, by loving others and serving others and helping others and giving to others and loving others. And that's all predicated upon the mercy of God. And that's Paul's point. In other words, right, because of God's mercy, we're to give ourselves completely to the service of God. We're to sacrifice ourselves on the altar of service. And this is our, our third and final point this morning. We've seen the appeal of Paul. We've seen the, the mercies of God, and now we turn to the living sacrifice, which should be each and every single one of us. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, that sounds strange, right? A living sacrifice is an oxymoron. I mean, like a, a small elephant is like a, an oxymoron. Right? Um, a bright black wall is an oxymoron, and a, a living sacrifice is an oxymoron because sacrifices are dead, they're not alive. When a worshiper in the Old Testament came to a priest, he'd bring an animal, 
right, to the priest, which was live. The priest would take the animal, often lay his hand on the animal, like imputing sin to that animal, perhaps praying for God to accept the sacrifice. Then he'd kill the animal, and when it was killed, it would be a sacrifice placed on the altar. But here, uh, James Montgomery Boyce, as he said, with a burst of divinely inspired creativity, Paul reveals the sacrifices we are to offer are not to be dead, but rather living. See, the difference comes here is that we don't need to kill ourselves for our sin. Christ has already done that on the cross. His sacrifice on the cross paid for our sins. The idea here is, though, is that we, we sacrifice all our lives for Christ in service. Not sacrifice for sins, that's what Jesus did, but sacrifice for service. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.15 says it about as well as any. He died for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. In other words, Jesus died for us, therefore we ought to live for him. That's what Romans 12.1 is, is, is talking about. Jesus was our sacrifice for sins, that we might sacrifice ourselves for service. Now, there is a lot of sacrificial imagery here in verse 1. I, I trust that you see that. A couple things. First of all, bodies. I think that's an allusion to sacrificial um, sacrificial imagery. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, maybe this is obvious, but it goes without saying, perhaps. But but Paul mentions it, so I pointed out. You see, the animal, what was sacrificed, it wasn't the animal's fur that was sacrificed. It wasn't just the mere hoof or or his tooth that was sacrificed. He doesn't say, oh, take the tooth of the animal. He doesn't take the body of the animal. Everything that the animal is, is their whole body. It costs them their whole lives. And so likewise, we too, with our whole bodies, our whole lives are to give ourselves in service to God. Sacrifices are to be holy. You're a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God. The emphasis of the Old Testament in bringing sacrifices are that perfect animals needed to be brought. Like pure animals. Holy animals, if you will. Leviticus 1.3. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it a male without blemish. Leviticus 1.10. If his gift for a burnt offering is from the flock, from the sheep or goats, he shall bring a male without blemish. Leviticus 3.1. If his offering is a sacrifice of peace offering, if he offers an animal from the herd, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. God, when he had sacrifices, they're to be holy, they're to be pure, they're to be without blemish. And when those in Malachi's day brought the lame, sick, and the blind, like, oh, I can't use that one. That one's lame or that one's blind. I'll just might as well give it to God. The Lord strongly rebuked them. He says this, Malachi 1.10, I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. Which leads this whole acceptance, whether God accepts our sacrifice or not. Right here in Romans 12.1, which is holy and acceptable. It should be a holy sacrifice, which is acceptable, because God won't accept second best. Malachi 1.13, you bring what has been taken by violence, right? you stole something, or it's lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering, shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and bows it. And yet sacrifice to the Lord was blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. In other words, right, God wants our best to be accepted. It's got to be holy. It's got to be pure. So it's got to be acceptable before the Lord. It really goes back to the Ten Commandments where he says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Don't worship idols because you're just two-timing, right? It's divided affections. But worship me and worship me only, 
the Lord says. When, when God comes to us, he wants all of us. This is really the manifestation of the great commandment, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Uh, final imagery. So we, we've seen the, the bodies imagery. We've seen the, the holy and acceptable imagery. Uh, we also see this worship imagery, which is your spiritual worship. In the Old Testament times, work is, uh, worship was focused around sacrifices I mean, they're, they're focused upon the time, the, the convening of the, the, um, the celebrations in Jerusalem where they bring their animals, they bring their sacrifices, Passover. Right? It was all about sacrificing that lambs. Oftentimes, at the convocations, they had multiple sacrifices. They increased the daily sacrifices. Anytime people sinned to be right with God, they, they came and they worshiped the Lord in that way. But for us, it's a little different. Our whole lives are to be one of worship. You know, we can often fall into the trap of thinking that worship is just Sunday morning singing. Um, but worship takes place whenever you give yourself completely to the Lord, which is, is the idea here. Uh, I think that's the idea of uh, Romans 12, right? Be- beginning of verse 3. By the grace of God given to me, I say everyone not to think of himself more highly not to think, but think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. And and here he talks about the body and and what God has given you, you give it back to God. Whatever you have, whatever you do in your life, you give it back to God. And he's calling it, I think, spiritual worship. There's worship to God, which is spiritual. It's not this fleshly killing animals. It's a spiritual worship of the Lord. He says in verse 4, For in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to his faith. If service, in our serving. The one who teaches, in his teaching. The one who exhorts, in his exhortation. The one who contributes, in generosity. The one who leads, with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. The idea here is that whatever you do, however you do it, you're giving it completely to the Lord, and that is your worship. That is your service unto the Lord. Uh, we sang today. I wasn't planning on this, but this is a, a good way for us to end. You can open your hymnals to hymn number 597. We sang this right before I preached. Maybe it was would be good, just as good, to sing it afterwards, but it, it really points the picture of what Paul is talking about, about this living sacrifice this is Frances Havergal, and she. the story of this hymn is that, is that she had the opportunity, had some guests in her house, I think, and had the opportunity late at night to, to share the gospel late into the night. And basically, and I'm not sure you've ever had that experience before. I know I have on several occasions, right, where someone's particularly open to the gospel, and you're talking about it, and they're interested, and they're talking about it, and talking about it, talking about it, and you go late into the night, and then you go to bed, and you're like, God... I just want to be used of you in, in whatever way you want. I'm just I'm giving myself to you. And that's exactly what, what she said. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Just let my life be a living sacrifice, consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. Always worshiping God. Always praying to him. Always giving everything I got. He says, take my hands. Here's my body. Take my hands. Let them move with the impulse of thy love. Take my feet. Let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Swift and beautiful for thee. Take my hands and my feet. Let them them just be swift and beautiful. Let, 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 Let my hands and feet be used for you. Let them be my spiritual worship or my voice. Let me sing always only for my king. 
Let my lips be filled with messages from thee. Let, let me sing to your glory. Let me speak to your glory. May that be my worship. Take my silver and my gold, but my money, right? Not a mite would I withhold. I'm not going to withhold the bad. I'm just going to give it all. It's all. God, it's all yours. God gave it to us anyway. He's given. It's all yours. Well, let use them. Every power as you shall choose. Every power as you shall choose. Anything that I have is yours, God. I just want to want to give it. Take my love, my Lord, I pour at thy feet its treasure store. Take myself and I will be ever only all for thee. That's, that's my love. That's myself. That's my all. I'm a living sacrifice, which he's saying. Take my will. Make it thine. It shall be no longer mine. Take my heart. It is thine own. It shall be thy royal throne. And there she just goes even into her attitudes and perspectives. says, everything I have is all of yours. And I think that's the thrust of Romans chapter 12 when he's talking about be a living sacrifice. Now, the details, we haven't talked about a lot of details, particularly how to do that. Though Francis Havergal gave some ways. Just have, have hands that help, have feet that move, have lips that speak, have voices that sing, have resources that give and help. And I think that's the idea, exactly what Paul is talking about. As God has given you a gift, use it all to his glory to be a spiritual worship. Well, I think the important point to remember here from Romans is that we have received mercy from the Lord, his sacrifice from our sin, for our sins, so that we then sacrifice for service. And so let's never forget that it's all based upon, predicated upon the mercies of God. Let's not get in deep of Romans chapter 12, Romans 13, and not realize that it all comes from the gospel. Because everything is there, and that's, that's our hope. Our hope is in Christ. Our hope is in the the crucified Lord. And that's what we're going to celebrate here in the, the Lord's Supper. So maybe just bow your heads. I want to give you some time to even think and, and reflect upon this. Even with your head bowed, just even reflect. Do you, first of all, do you believe the gospel? Do you believe the mercy of God to you? Have you embraced Christ Jesus? Have you seen his sacrifice upon the cross as sufficient for your sins? Are you claiming that sacrifice as your own? When you stand someday before the Lord and he says, why should I enter the king? Why should I let you enter my kingdom? Are you saying, not because of what I did. I'm a sinner through and through. God, but by your grace, you saved me. and I'm trusting in the cross of Christ. That's what the Lord's Supper is all about because Jesus took that bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. He took that cup. It says it's a cup of the new covenant that promised that he will change us and transform us. So I encourage you simply to evaluate your heart, evaluate your life, see if you're trusting in Christ. And if you're not trusting in Jesus, just let the, let the bread pass and the cup pass. It's okay. But if that is where your hope is and where your trust lies, then by all means, celebrate the supper together with us. Oh, Father, we are, are thankful for Jesus who bore in his body our sins upon the cross. God, so that we don't have to die for our own sins, but God, but we die to our, our selfish pleasures and we are a, a living sacrifice that, that is continually Bending, bowing to you, longing, O oh God, that you would take our hearts 
and they would be ever only all for thee. So, Lord, I pray that you would draw us to the cross of Christ, which is the mercy of God in Christ Jesus to us. Help us even in this moment to worship you and to to celebrate all that you've done, the cross of Christ for our sins. Amen.